0: turbulent times for our friends in New Zealand. In January, Jacinda Ardern suddenly resigned as PM, leaving her replacement Chris Hipkins to deal with an escalating cost-of-living crisis and now the aftermath of Cyclone Gabriel, the worst storm in a generation. Now, this has all unfolded in an election year. Kiwis are set to vote in October. So uh, what lies ahead across the ditch? Tonight we're joined by two esteemed guests, economist Oliver Hartwich, Oliver is Exec Director of the New Zealand Initiative, and Associate Professor Lara Greaves. Lara's a lecturer in New Zealand Politics and Public Policy at Victoria University in Wellington. Oliver, welcome back. Let's start with the storms. The um, cyclone Gabriel hit New Zealand in much the same way as Katrina hit New Orleans.
1: Yes, and uh, it was a devastating experience for our country. We could see it coming for days. We had been warned. But then when it actually happened, uh, it was unimaginable, um, the devastation that the cyclone brought to large parts of the North Island. And it took us days, really, to comprehend just how big this event was, because for the first few days, there was limited coverage um, of um, cell phones, for example. We We simply didn't know. We didn't have enough information from on the ground. But as the days passed, we could actually see the whole scale of the devastation it left behind. And we still don't quite understand how much the economic impact will be. The one thing is clear, it will be in the billions of dollars.
0: Well, early estimates suggest the recovery bill could exceed 13 billion.
1: It could well be that. I even heard um, some estimates going higher, as high as 10% of New Zealand GDP, which would bring us up to about 30 billion dollars. But whatever the figure will be in the end, it will be enormous. And of course, we shouldn't forget we also lost lives, of course, in the course of the cyclone, not as many as we initially feared. There were about 6,000 people missing in the beginning. That figure has uh, fortunately come down to just, in inverted commas, 11. But still, uh, the cost, the human cost, the cost in lost businesses and livelihoods, um, the cost in disruption, it is enormous.
0: Insurance companies are predictably refusing to cover many areas, uh, Oliver.
1: Well, uh, some areas are definitely covered still. And uh, we also expect some large payments, of course, from international reinsurers. So some of the risk is covered. But, of course, many things uh, will be disrupted for a long time to come. And uh, the cost to business is enormous.
0: Lara, the forest industry is also under the spotlight. Why is that?
2: Well, we had in the, on the East Coast, in the cyclone, a lot of debris, a lot of debris from forestry. People call it slash. And there were kind of quite shocking images of these tree trunks and other waste kind of drifting down rivers and into houses and into people's businesses. And those shocking images, combined with people talking about this going back decades now, has really like drawn a lot of really political attention at this phase.
0: In politics, timing is everything. And it's Tough timing for Chris Hipkins. Who is he, Laura? Tell me about his political background.
2: Well, he comes into the prime ministership with a nickname, Chippy, and so he's been a really dedicated member of the Labour Party, joined in his teenage years. Um, He styles himself as sort of more of a working class man, more of a fan of pies and sausage rolls, um, and kind of makes a lot of jokes about his fashion. He's really kind of set himself up as a bit of a contrast to what people might call the urban liberals or elites like Jacinda Ardern and and Grant Robertson. So he's styled himself as a more down-home sort of guy. Um, He's just really been a faithful Labour. Party member going back decades. He was our COVID recovery minister, and he's been he's held a, a number of ministerial portfolios in the Ardern government in the last five and a half years. He's also been called minister fix it. So it's kind of not unexpected. Of course, the resignation of Ardern was incredibly unexpected, but he wasn't really an unexpected choice for leader. He's kind of viewed as quite a safe pair of hands.
0: To walk this back a bit, uh, he was a student leader at your own university.
2: Yes, and they're very proud of that, um, Victoria University having the most um, pre- most prime ministers, um, produced the most prime ministers. And, yeah, that's one of the kind of classic, almost kind of classic hallmarks of politics on the left in New Zealand now is a stint in student politics. Jacinda Ardern herself spent a bit of time in, in the Young Labour Party.
0: And, Lara, he was a, a trusted member of Jacinda's inner circle?
2: Yes, and that's been one of those things where we've struggled in terms of being political commentators and political scientists to know whether that was really going to be a strength or a weakness for him. In the early polls, after becoming Prime Minister, it's looked like he has a bit of a honeymoon, a bit of a jump in the polls by a few points. But it was kind of hard to know as to whether that would be really viewed by a strength, you know, given our great COVID response or a weakness for the voters, given that people had kind of started to sour a bit on Jacinda Ardern.
0: In contrast to uh, Jacinda's politics of kindness, you suggest that Hipkins is more of a cutthroat player.
2: Well, he's come through straight away and refocused a lot of policies. So, what was happening in terms of the Labour government is they hadn't necessarily gotten through a lot of their sort of transformational policies or their policies that they were trying to get across the line because of things like COVID and what a lot of critics are pointing to as sort of inefficiencies in their cabinet and in their government. But what Hipkins has done is come in and slashed a bunch of policies quite pragmatically. Um, one of the media merger projects and things along those lines. Well, no, and he's
0: uh, me, I, I'm interested in that particular one. He's, the the idea was to uh, to merge TV TVNZ and Radio NZ into a sort of an ABC or BBC structure.
2: Yes, and the idea is that that would have saved a lot of money, but what it ended up becoming viewed by the public as is this kind of niche media elite type issue. So what Hipkins has tried to do is refocus his policy agenda on bread and butter issues, because just like Australia, we've got a lot of struggles with inflation. And so I think a lot of the public were viewing this as kind of like an elite niche issue, so he's tried to pull away from that.
0: Who will be opposing him? Who on what are the opposition?
2: So, we have a Chris versus Chris battle, Chris Hipkins, the current Prime Minister, and Chris Luxon. So, Chris Luxon's known as a long term airline CEO, an international businessman who's only been in politics since the 2020 election. Um, He's viewed as a relative outsider, although he has been leader for over a year now. And that's our sort of centre right national party. They're kind of, I would say, people have. It, they're kind of moving to that centre ground. So we're looking at kind of a battle between Labour and National to try and take those centre-lying swing voters with policies of broad kind of appeal to just try to win in our sort of mixed-member proportional system where really it's just a group of swing voters in the middle that you really do need to win over.
0: Oliver, back to you. What do you make of Hepkin's uh, bread-and-butter strategy?
1: I think it was exactly the right kind of strategy. Um, the previous uh, prime minister had tried to do too much at once. She, of course, has an, had an a- absolute majority in parliament, which is unheard of under our MMP electoral system. And so she tried to do the most with it. And unfortunately, that meant trying to do too many things at once. And then, of course, with the cost of living crisis, a reset was necessary anyway. And so I think Hipkins did exactly what he had to do, cut some of the well least popular programs of his predecessor and focus really on the issues that matter to everyday New Zealanders, the cost of living.
0: Now, of course, cost of living is a challenge facing governments all over. But uh, how big is it in a problem in New Zealand?
1: Well, currently, um, if you look at inflation figures, we are tracking at about 7.2%. It would probably be closer to 8% if we not also had a temporary fuel duty discount. And there are no signs of inflation actually abating at the moment. So it's been at this level relatively stubbornly for the last half a year or so. And uh, this will not go away anytime soon because the Reserve Bank created so much money during the COVID years. But it will just take some time to really bring the Reserve Bank's balance sheet under control. And until that is done, inflation pressures will remain high.
0: Now, unemployment seems to be quite low, Oliver.
1: That is right. And also that has a lot to do with the monetary stimulus that we got from the Reserve Bank. I just looked up the figures for you. Um, at the beginning of COVID, the total assets on the Reserve Bank's balance sheet were 30 billion New Zealand dollars. Today, we're looking at 100 billion dollars. So, that gives you a bit of an impression of just how much money the Reserve Bank has created. They barely held any government securities at the beginning of COVID, and today they still have more than 50 billion dollars on their books. So, they need to shrink this because otherwise, This money is flowing through the economy and creating inflation along the way. And that is what we're seeing. So actually, when you say that a lot of central banks around the world are facing the same problems, that may be true. But our own problems are really homemade because we have a free floating exchange rate. We are really the masters of our own inflation rate. We can choose what kind of inflation we would like to have. And unfortunately, our Reserve Bank actually pushed us towards that.
0: Nonetheless, the Reserve Bank is predicting a shallow recession.
1: That may well be true, and ironically, it might also be true because of the rebuild after the cyclone, because that will push, of course, the economy um, through rebuilding activity. And still, for normal New Zealanders, I think times are tough because we are facing this cost-of-living crisis. We are facing also an environment in which our reserve bank is now increasing the official cash rate. And with that, of course, mortgage rates are increasing as well at a time of falling house prices. So for every everyday New Zealanders, ordinary New Zealanders, this is a really tough uh, time at the moment.
0: So the country's housing market must be very vulnerable.
1: Yes, and uh, we can see this um, in cities around the country. So from uh, the peaks that we achieved about uh, one and a half years ago, House prices have in some parts of the country and in some parts of the market subsided by 30 or 40% already.
0: And homeowners are raising rents for tenants. It's not a a good situation. Now, speaking of groceries, which uh, I understand fruit and veg have gone up 23% in the last year, eggs have been in particularly short supply. There's been lots of tweets I've got about eggs. Tell me what's going on there.
1: Well, we had some legislation about um, how to uh, keep chickens and farm chickens and uh, unfortunately that led to this egg crisis. And again, leading back to the cyclone, that has also implications of course for food prices because the area affected mostly by the cyclone, Hawke's Bay, is also the basically the region where we grow a lot of our food in this country and therefore we will most likely see disrupted supply chains and and different food items for a long time to come.
0: So the ban on battery farms, which was legislated way back in 2012, has finally come home, well, home to roost.
1: Yes, um, that's one way of expressing it and it wouldn't be too far off.
0: I want to uh, go back with you, Laura. I was looking through the list of things that he's sort of put on the back burner, and one of them was hate speech law reform. That's been debated, of course, since the Christchurch massacre. What's the problem with that?
2: So what's been really hard here is the extent to which um, the government can sort of legislate for anti-hate, hate hate speech laws, but still maintain that freedom of speech. And of course, a lot of opponents then engage in a kind of slippery slope, what about some type argument around really being concerned around a chilling effect on that. So what happened was the government came out with um, some legislation, Justice Minister Kitty Allen, talking about um, banning hate speech towards religious groups. Now they've kind of come back on that and said, no, they're they're going to shelve that for now and send it back to the Law Commission. So the Law Commission is going to take a broader look at hate speech and sort of legislating potentially for hate speech against LGBT groups and, and other groups. Now, that's a thing that has been a bit tricky because actually a lot of people who are for hate speech laws have said that this is a good move because the Law Commission will do a more thorough job on it. But then on the other hand, there are a lot of people on the left that are quite frustrated that this is taking quite a long time.
0: My guest to Dr. Laura Greaves and Dr. Oliver Hartwich. Lara, the uh, the recent departure of Jacinda created a sort of a tidal wave of regret around the planet. But clearly there was a disconnect between her global reputation and her domestic standing. Please explain that to me.
2: Yes, fundamentally there was. So there was a point in sort of the the final long lockdown for New Zealanders, the final long COVID lockdown, where we started to see the government support kind of creep downwards and kind of go towards where they were in 2017 when Jacinda Ardern and Labour were first elected and had to kind of form a government under a quirk of our MMP system and, and negotiate with Winston Peters. Um, National fundamentally won that 2017 election. And so Labour was kind of going back towards that, kind of level of support. And I think that that was really hard to reinforce to people overseas when they saw Jacinda Ardern as such a superstar. And fundamentally, I think if we look at the history books, I think that she'll go down as one of our great leaders. However, um, at the time her resignation, what it has done is it's kind of disassociated Labour with Jacinda Ardern where what we were looking for was a really close election, an election that Labour was potentially going to lose, which international um, commentators and people i have talked to were very confused about.
0: Now, I I was asking about the opposition before. Let's look at opposition leader Chris Luxon, a former CEO of uh, Air New Zealand. He's steadied the National Party, has he not?
2: Yes, he sure has. So he's kind of been that leader that's represented that change within the party, that stability within the party. Generally what happens in New Zealand politics and actually politics in a lot of countries is a leader will leave... And leave a vacuum. And that's kind of what John Key had done after being a very popular Prime Minister. And so there were a succession of, a very quick succession of leaders. Todd Muller was leader for 50 something days and, and just a lot of mess. And Chris Luxon really has brought the party back together and kind of discipline them in a way and stop the leaks and all of those sorts of things.
0: Laura, I don't know if you know this, but our Prime Minister, our last Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, got into terrible trouble by being on holidays in Hawaii when he (laughs) should have been here in Australia holding the fort. I believe a holiday in Hawaii has has caused Chris Luxon some embarrassment.
2: Yes, he was a bit embarrassed when one of his social media accounts posted that he was in a rural area when actually in reality he was in Hawaii. So that did cause a bit of embarrassment there. There have been quite a few gaffes along the way with him and I think really a key challenge for him is trying to make it look like he is a good manager of people and can really cope on a political stage as such an inexperienced person in in that space.
0: Oliver, how would you assess Luxon?
1: Very similarly. I mean, he comes from an international business career. He was um, CEO of a regional branch of Unilever in North America. He led a New Zealand as CEO for eight years. But in politics, he is still quite a rookie because he only entered Parliament in 2020. He was an MP for just about a year when he became party leader. And actually, in just uniting his party and stopping the leaks and actually having a more kind of... Um, well, focused approach for the opposition, he's actually succeeded. Where he hasn't actually delivered much yet is in policy terms. So we only just got a few policy statements from him over the last few weeks, but we're still waiting for that one big, great idea that he's going to take into election to to win this. It
0: it sounds like he's practicing the small target uh, strategy.
1: Yes, and that probably would have been a winning strategy had Jacinda Ardern not resigned. But he's now facing a very different prime minister, one that actually starts off with enormous popularity ratings, actually above uh, Jacinda Ardern's recent popularity ratings. And um, Chris Luxon now has to find a different strategy because the old strategy that probably would have won him the action against um, Ardern will no longer cut it against Chris Hipkins.
0: So, Ardern's legacy, Oliver...
1: Well, she, of course, will be remembered for her crisis management. Um, She will be remembered for how she managed um, the Christchurch massacre, for how she then led uh, New Zealand through COVID uh, with stunning communications um, uh, capabilities. And, of course, we also had um, a White Island uh, volcanic eruption. So these were the defining moments of her premiership where she probably didn't succeed um, as much was in actually achieving the things that she promised New Zealanders when she first got elected. So she started off by saying that she would fix the housing market, deliver 100,000 new homes, fight fight, um, child poverty, drive down New Zealand emissions. And when you look at the actual achievements in all of these areas, she didn't achieve much. Now, people might say she didn't really have a chance because um, there were too many events she had to deal with, but it's a mixed legacy, I would say.
0: Lara, whatever happens in the next few months, it does look like a very tight election.
2: I would say definitely. It's going to come down to our mixed-member proportional system and who the different parties can form coalitions with. And one place I'm really watching is we have those seven Māori electorates where voters of Māori descent can vote for their representative, and those are normally quite close. So the Māori party, we're really looking to see how many seats that they pick up and ultimately who they would go with, because we always know that the Greens will go with Labour and ACT will go with National, but it's really what will happen in that sort of potential centre-ground or just somewhere on the edges of our system. that That's what really what I'm looking for.
0: I see the left-green party is at, uh, polling at about 7 to 8%, and the right-wing Libertarian Act party a little bit more.
2: Yes, they'll bounce around those numbers, and actually they've got the best support, both of them, than they have in years. So they really do... Um, create an interesting feature of our system where they work with the you know, major parties but they also provide opposition from either side, from the left and, and from the right, um, at, least, at least in the way that they talk about the policies, which really does make for, I would hope to be optimistic for this, but does make for some interesting debates.
0: Thank you both for your contribution. I've been talking to Laura Greaves, Associate Professor in Politics at Victoria University. That's in Wellington, of course. And to Economist Oliver Hartwich, the uh, Exec Director of the New Zealand Initiative. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.